Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmurz Day, August 17th, 2020. On the show today, news from the parks, and we read a bunch of new surveys from Disney and Universal. In our main segment, Jim talks about how Disney's Animal Kingdom has struggled over the past 22 years to come up with some sort of a nighttime entertainment program for that theme park that actually appeals to guests. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that you can't buy hot pockets. You can only buy cold pockets to which you add the heat yourself. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Given the the amount of time you spent walking around Orlando's blazingly hot theme parks lately, I'm I'm kind of surprised you just don't shove a hot pocket in your pocket just to have. Actually, I keep them in my socks because my feet are closer to the ground Ah. and the heat radiating from the concrete cooks them in no time. That opens a whole new series of questions. <laughs> and remind me never to, hey, Jim, would you like a hot pocket? Like, I would no, not. I'm good. Thank you. I'm, I would not. I'm thank good. You. <laughs> we, uh, my sister Christina and I were walking around uh, Epcot yesterday and mm-hmm. the heat index temperature is no breeze yesterday. The heat index temperature was 107. And <sighs> for kicks, we, uh, we tried to measure the heat of, of the pavement, you know, where it turns sort of different colors in Epcot. And the closest we could get on our thermometer was it only goes up to 120 degrees, mm-hmm. um, but it was 120 degrees in the sun. Oh, and that's as high as the, as the, as the uh, thermometer went. This is why the leave of legacy, you know, got pulled out of the front of the park. The number of people, I'm just going to lean against this set of, get, <laughs> yeah, what, what could go wrong? So Exactly. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do a uh, shout out to subscribers over at Disney Dish bandcamp.com. Jim, I've lost count of how many weeks in a row we've had a record number of Bandcamp subscribers. Thank you all very, very much. I hope you enjoyed the Splash Mountain ride in stereo and the Nature Trails walkthroughs at Animal Kingdom. We've got some Epcot walkarounds coming up. And thanks to new subscribers, P.A. Johnson, ENC with the bicycles, and Penny B. 2003 And longtime subscribers, Mike Bo 523 D. Barnes, and NJ Family Dad. Jim, these folks are the Chevrolet employees whose job is to look for future car ideas based on the designs that guests come up with in Epcot's Test Track Pavilion. Apparently, Penny caused quite the commotion when she pulled up in her kid's after-school pickup line in a royal blue car with solar panels, six wheels, and rocket engines on the trunk. But she also got three orders for the car, which should be delivered in 2022. And that's how these things work, Jim. True story. Any information on the cup holder armrest <laughs> yeah, situation? I didn't think to ask. I didn't think to ask. <laughs> Nancy tells a story about a family friend. They'd go to buy a car and that they'd have all the features they want and they'd climb inside and they'd sit and if their arms touched while they were in the the, the you know the, the Oh too small. Yeah, forget too it. Too small. It's like, no, nope, I need a different car. And it's like, but it's everything. It's like, no, our elbows touch. We need a bigger you know. <laughs> but you're married. <laughs> That's the reason. Right? You know, it's exactly. like I need some trace, so <laughs> It's true. It's true. Yeah, there's uh, there's certain things that you have to have in a card. There's certain things that you that you don't. The couple from here kind of make or break. Mm-hmm. But anyway, all right, Jim. Let's do the uh, the news. The big news as of yesterday was that Disney and the Actors Equity Union have signed a memorandum of understanding about how the equity actors will return to work in the Disney theme parks. And one of the key provisions is free COVID nineteen testing, which will be run by the state of Florida over near Disney's main gate offices by Animal Kingdom, and it's also uh, open to the public, I hear, and it's free. 
Results take wow. three to five business days to arrive. So Jim, what kind of timeline are we looking at now for this agreement to be finalized and then for shows to start running again in the parks? First of all, I'm just glad that this logjam has finally been removed. Because face it, that's, you know, so much of the Disney theme park experience keys off of shows like this and performers like this. But they'd like to have this up and running within two weeks, three weeks of the absolute outside. Especially once we get past Labor Day, mm-hmm. we've seen Disney creep in operating hours heading into the fall a little bit. Right. We need that much more entertainment to get people to come into the parks. And so it's crucial to get these shows back up and running and these performers in the streets. So at the absolute outside, supposedly, after Labor Day, it's up and running and the performers are back in the park and we go. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think parks, basically every park but the Magic Kingdom really needs the equity actors to make a complete day Oh yeah, in the parks. Yeah. The studios, especially, I think they've got 11 operating attractions right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're asking people to pay full price for those tickets, 11 attractions is right uh, 11, 11 attractions in what, nine hours a day. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult value proposition to uh, to make. But if they add in a couple more things, I think I think it'll be a, it'll be better there. No, I agree. Totally agree. And so speaking of that, you mentioned that the uh, the park hours are uh, are shortened now. So starting uh, in early September, Disney's uh, parks will be open now nine hours a day instead of the current 10. Mm-hmm. And this follows a, a move that Universal did similar thing, right? One, one hour less. And there are all sorts of interesting ramifications on this. One of them is that uh, Disney had for Epcot that after four, mm-hmm. Epcot pass. Well, now Epcot's only open till eight or it will be only open till till eight. So they've actually changed the uh, after four pass to begin at 2 p.m. Oh, okay. Instead of good. four. Good that they recognize that. Okay, good, good, good. But I think, I think the big thing uh, that we saw in terms of passes, though, is there's been a, we think, a significant uptake in Universal's $165 to park one day pass mm. that's valid through December 24th. So we'd mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it was a one-day ticket where you got to visit two parks, and that was it for $165. But then lots of readers sent in a clarification on that. And it's really, it, it's basically an annual pass and through the end of the year. For $165, you get to visit both parks in the same day. And Jim, we've seen uh, attendance much higher than expected at Universal ever since this pass came out and people got wind of it. So it took about a week for the uh, for the news to come out, but... On our scale of 1 to 10, last weekend, uh, Universal was a 9. And again, you know, some rides aren't operating, things aren't running at, at capacity, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely the, uh, the busiest we've seen the parks since reopening. And, and I think, I think this, this pass is, is responsible for it. Well, and it's important to point out here that our buddy Matt over at Attractions Magazine pointed out that, yes, that there's this, you know, this wonderful discounted admissions media, but people are still paying full price to park at Universal yeah. and $26 a day? Yeah, that's what parking costs. It's it's uh, So depending on where you live in Orlando, it could be cheaper to Uber. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing too is, uh, you know, Uber gets you uh, dropped off a little bit, uh, a little bit closer. But I don't mind the parking uh, so much because you can you can go and then leave whenever whenever you want. So, no, so that's, that's not true. bad. That's and true. you know, the food and stuff is still uh, is still full price. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think I mean, it's a phenomenal deal. One hundred sixty five dollars for September, October, November, most of December, and then what's left of August. So basically mm-hmm. five months. 
yeah. for $165, two parks. Amazing. Yeah. The good thing is, though, is people see value in that, right? With COVID and people still supposedly reluctant to travel, you are that much more reliant on your Florida locals to come out and oh, yeah. in, pass at that price point. In fact, we're, we, have a, we have a bunch of surveys coming up, which we'll talk about, where uh, from both Disney and Universal where they, uh, they talk about uh, tickets, pricing, and uh, whether you had intended to visit the parks. So we'll talk about that shortly. Okay. All right, Jim, speaking of uh, being in the parks, uh, what, we mentioned this uh, on last week's show as a teaser. What's up with that big pile of dirt over at the Magic Kingdom parking lot by uh, where the, the speedway used to be? It's like three stories tall, and you can't miss it because when you're driving out of the Magic Kingdom parking lot, it rises like something out of Monument Valley or the movie E.T., the extraterrestrial. No, Close Encounters of the three, Third Kind, right? Well, I get it. And it's interesting. If you look close, there's Richard Dreyfuss right there at the base, you know, with a spoon. <laughs> exactly. Trying to shape it. A lot of work going on in the Magic in the parking lot. They're building a fairly large a retention pond to help with, with drainage issues out there. So, right. again, and the, and, and get- the, Yeah, the pond is definitely there. You can see it. Okay, but you have to take into consideration the ridiculously high water table. Yeah, you dig down like five feet, you hit water. I mean, that's it exactly. So to have this sort of soil on Disney property is an incredibly valuable resource. I mean, I remember back in 91, 92, when Disney was beginning the initial work on expanding uh, the then Disney MGM theme park. And so they were in the process of doing the site work for Sunset Boulevard. And what was mm-hmm. interesting is they went out there, they cleared the site of of all of the flora and the fauna, ripping out the trees and that sort of thing. And then they let the site stand for about three and four months. And the idea in, was... Okay, in, in, a, in a subtropical or tropical environment, they just let it sit there? Like, yes. What could possibly happen with nature here for the next three months? Well, you know, just... But again, this is Florida, the land of the sinkhole and all that. And then to watch them then roll in with dump truck after dump truck after dump truck of soil that they then threw on top of the site and then rolled steamrollers up and down to to create this firm bed uh, that they then built the street on. And of course, you know, when you consider what sort of pilings you had to put in to make sure the Tower of Terror was ridiculously secure and that sort of thing. So you're not going to see this pile of soil stay in place forever. It's right now in the sun. It's being cured because, again, it's Florida. Everything is ridiculously damp. Yep. And then, yet in the not-too-distant future, uh, and I watch you, again, when you talk about the $900 million worth of projects that are suddenly on pause— you're going to see the soil wander around property. Uh, you know, there, there's there's a berm that's been built around the Star Wars Intergalactic Hotel yep. that is going to need to be loamed, you know, so you can plant greenery so the hotel actually disappears. Oh, good point. Yeah, because right now they've got uh, they've just got some straw down on it. Yeah. And yeah. That, that appeared within a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Just enjoy the giant mound while you can because it's going away. Okay. All right. Fair enough. I, w- I thought that they were uh, they were going to do a uh, uh, a really interesting hotel right in the middle of the parking lot, but <laughs> but high enough that you can actually see the park from there. Because again, that land, you know they're not making any more land around the no, Magic Kingdom. No, yeah. no, they're not. No, they're not. And you know, just that you know, it always fascinates me every couple of years to see them return to the site of the Venetian Hotel. And oh, Jim, like, there's there's stuff going on there right now. Like there's there are construction trucks and. 
test materials. I, I drive by it like every couple of days just to mm-hmm. see what's going on there. Yeah. If they can ever figure out how to actually build a resort on that. I mean, I, the, the joke in Imagineering is like, look, just build the Atlantis resort. All right. You know, yeah, exactly. And when it sinks, you know, it's like we make people pay extra for the theming. They should ask the uh, Oriental Land Company to come out because didn't they build parts oh. of Tokyo Disneyland on reclaimed seabed? They did. They did. But again, if you watch Leslie Iwerks' uh, Imagineering documentary, remember when they had that earthquake and they showed all of the water suddenly sort of coming up out of the built on the edge of of Tokyo Bay, just because of the ground shaking and all that. So they have experience, but I don't know if they have Central Florida experience. That's true. Good point. Good point. All right, Jim, the uh, the other thing I wanted to mention for my visits around the, the theme parks, and this is my hot take of the week. And it's this, I actually like the socially distant lines better than the regular lines for rides now. So I was in um, Pirates of the Caribbean and mm-hmm. we were, we were in our socially distant line and it went all, it, it filled the entire plaza. You know, like when you, when you walk into the Pirates of the Caribbean queue, you're in that opened air plaza area and the queue basically goes left to right as switchbacks all the way until you get to the door. Mm-hmm. of the attraction. And we were in then I thought, well, you know, God, this is really a long line, mm-hmm. but we moved six feet every couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. And so you move farther along every time one person in front of you gets on the ride. So the scenery changes more often for you. And it feels like you're making more progress. And I mention this because I know that some of our listeners are uh, psychologists and economists. And I'm thinking that the current way uh, that Disney's operating here. It's an excellent experiment on how people perceive waiting in line. So if y'all are interested in this and uh, and we can help gathering data for it, let me know. But I'm, okay. I'm convinced more people are satisfied with this method of queuing up. The fact that you move faster for the same amount of wait time. I totally think it's a better thing. Imaginaries have been puzzling for like the last five years or so with the notion that so many people, when they are in line, are face down in their phone. You know, well, why are we building this, you know, spending $30 million on the queue if they're not yeah. looking up? But now to add the added incentive of I'm looking at my phone, oh, am I standing on the footprint thing? Just sort of like, all right, from this point forward, we're not painting the ceiling. There's no <laughs> exactly. no, no one looks at the ceiling anymore. Well, the, the reason why I, uh, I bring it up too is in Walt Disney World, a lot of the queues, a lot of the lines are undercover because of, you know, it rains in Florida. Oh, sure. yep. But in Disneyland, mm-hmm. the queues are outdoors because mm-hmm. it never rains in Southern California, mm-hmm. right? So if they've got to now use outdoor space and more outdoor space to put people in lines, it constricts the number of people you can have in the park. Just out ahead of the opening of Galaxy's Edge, they had that Project Stardust where they were moving planters and removing right. sidewalks. You know, well, that's good, though, because, I mean, it freed up, it freed up walkways, and so they, they did. just not for they the did. reason that they uh, they need it now, right? Yeah, I guess not. So. All right, Jim, on to listener questions. Uh, so here's one that's unusual. It comes from Ray. It says, uh, so, Len, you and Jim know everything. Uh, there's a very large tree in the Africa outpost at Epcot. It has a waxy leaf like a ficus house tree and my personality. It's huge and towers over the location. What type of tree is it and how long has it been there? It is by far one of my favorite trees. Thanks, and I love your podcast. Okay, so the only reason I'm answering this is because I wanted to know more about how Ray maintains a list of his favorite trees. So (laughs) it sounds like the Jungle Cruise joke. I like to point Mm -hmm. out some of my favorite plants. That one. There we go. (laughs) Anyway, I went over to Epcot yesterday, and sure enough, there is a huge tree with wacky leaves over at the refreshment outpost where the Africa Pavilion would have been if it was built. 
So I grabbed a couple of the leaves and I used an app called LeafSnap to identify it. And it turns out it is indeed a kind of ficus. So good job, Ray. It's a ficus elastica, a rubber tree. And I note that they can grow to 200 feet tall, though most commonly they're about 100 to 130 feet tall. And they're called a rubber tree because their sap used to be used to make rubber. So that's the name. Also, it's usually found in Asia, not Africa, which is a little not in character for the uh, for the location. Close enough, as far as I'm concerned. I'm genuinely impressed because I, I literally just saw a leaf snap like last week. They were demoing. Somebody was going through, the, I want to say, a flower garden in Central Park and identifying uh, flowers that were so good. Yep. Glenn, great work in the cutting edge here. Woo <laughs> I also stopped in for a hot dog while I was there because I was hungry. So, well, okay. All right. Here's a uh, here's a note from Patrick. He writes: uh, During this morning's workout, I was thinking of lens analysis of where and when John lives in Carousel of Progress. So this was last week's show, folks. If you haven't listened to it, I agree with your conclusions and I'm looking forward to future installments. I think, given the time lapses between the eras, that Occam's Razor's explanation will ultimately be that who we know as John is actually a time traveling narrator unstuck a la Billy Pilgrim. This is most clearly evidenced by his slow age progression over the eras. Also, John has some degree of omniscience as to the current news and larger trends in those eras and others, and he's aware of and interacts with the audiences over time. So John clearly has access to the fourth dimension because he cons consistently breaks the fourth wall. All right, lots to unpack here. So Occam's razor is the idea that the simplest explanation is usually correct. And Patrick is right in that the entire family doesn't seem to age at all. The changes in their appearance could be just them trying to blend in to whatever era they find themselves in. So maybe General Electric has perfected time travel, and this is their way of easing us into that reality. So for that matter, they could be vampires, uh, which would go a long way towards explaining what happens to that kid helping Sarah with the wash in Act 1, Jim. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sorry. This immediately <laughs> makes me think that someone needs to reach out to Taika Watiti, and the very next redo of Carousel of Progress should feature the cast of What We Do in the Shadows. <laughs> that was a hysterical premise, actually. All right. Yes, so, but yes. the reason I mentioned this, Jim, is Patrick's idea that we don't know everything there is to know about John. Has and has Disney ever done a thrill ride based on the idea of an unreliable narrator? Doesn't I don't, come I, to mind. I don't think they have. But imagine Tower of Terror where it's not called Tower of Terror. It's called the Hollywood Hotel Tour. And the guide plays it straight until the last few seconds before the drops. And then the guide turns out to be one of the ghosts. You see, <laughs> this I love. I mention this because there we know, you and I both know that there are some creative people in Burbank who listen to the <laughs> show. This idea is on the house, folks. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but an unreliable narrator. As, a, yeah. as the premise for a ride. I don't think it's been done. No, no. That's cool. That's cool. That's definitely an idea worth pursuing. All right. On to some uh, surveys. So a bunch of people have sent in new surveys from both Disney and Universal. Uh, here's one from Universal. And it's interesting because it's asking about Disney. So here's the question from Universal. Thinking about your most recent visit to Walt Disney World, which of the following reasons describe why you visited Walt Disney World at this time? Please check all that apply. So one was we had a good deal on tickets. We were waiting for a new ride or attraction to open. There was a special event we wanted to attend. It was the best fit for our schedule. We were hoping for good weather. We were hoping it would be less crowded or none of the above. Hmm. 
So those answers are interesting because the first one that mentions a good deal on tickets relates to the uh, FlexPass ticket that Florida residents just got from Disney. We're going to talk about that in the next survey. And then special event that we wanted to attend could mean food and garden. Okay. But the next question that Universal asks is, when do you next plan to visit Walt Disney World? Zero to six months, seven to 12 months, 12 to 18 months, 19 months or more from now, or I don't plan to visit again. Hmm. The, the third question, and this is, uh, you'll see this question pop up again. If the ticket you actually purchased had not been available, what ticket would you have purchased instead? So what was your second choice ticket? So I got this because I bought a universal annual pass. So the question mm-hmm. to me was then, what would I have bought if I wouldn't have bought an annual pass? And it lists everything from the one-day tickets to the multi-day or multi-park, uh, you know, one-day and two-day tickets all the way down. And so why would they want to know about that, Jim? Like, what was my second choice ticket? In the case of both Universal and Disney, they are staring down the barrel of what happens after Labor Day. I mean, a number of Florida schools started going back in and then (laughs) closing down. In fact, you've mentioned on earlier shows about the the Magic Kingdom you feel had like a a ceiling, artificial ceiling set of like 9,000 people. And there were days when there were only 4,000 people in the park. Oh, yeah. And that's Summerland. That's when people were supposedly free to travel. So after Labor Day, when the kids are back in school and, you know, everyone's back to work, this situation gets that much that desperate so what would seal the deal here what would make you come Ooh, you, know, you mentioned that there are a bunch of questions that that uh that coming up in the surveys we're going to talk about where i think that's the intent of the questions okay okay in fact uh max one of our listeners sent in a survey he got from disney after mm. purchasing one of the new two-day flex tickets so mm. the uh first interesting question in the survey is what are the top reasons you decided to purchase the two-day disney magic flex ticket to visit walt disney world between July 22nd and September 30th. And then it says, please select up to three. Friends and family wanted to go to experience a limited time or seasonal event. The promotional offer or discount was a good value to see new attractions, the ticket duration, health and safety measures were appropriate in my opinion, to celebrate a special occasion, to experience a specific attraction, to see a favorite character. I needed an escape from the daily routine. Yeah, you and me both brother. Yeah. Uh, limited crowds, Jim. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, to enjoy the Walt Disney World atmosphere. So the interesting thing is we know from Disney's earnings call back on the third that the word started getting out that no one was in Walt Disney World, right? The crowds were really, really low. And now Disney's surveying about it to see has, the, has hearing about limited crowds along with the health and safety measures that we're taking plus this ticket discount is that enough to get you back in the parks? And that's really interesting. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So the next question is, and we just talked about this for Universal, if the two-day Disney Magic Flix ticket wasn't available, what type of ticket would you have bought? So a one-day ticket, a two-day ticket, the three-day version of the uh, Magic Flix ticket, the four-day version of the Magic tic- uh, Flix ticket, a five-day or longer ticket or something else, or I wouldn't have purchased a ticket. So again, just like Universal, they're saying, if this wasn't available, what was your next bet? And I think in Disney's case, mm-hmm. they're saying, okay, what if, we don't, what if we don't offer the two-day ticket? Because historically, Disney's not offered a discount on two-day admissions. If you look in, the, in earlier this year, they definitely did the three- and four-day flex tickets, but they didn't do the two-day. So I think Disney's looking here to see how much, 
how many three-day tickets they're cannibalizing by doing the two-day tickets. That certainly makes sense. But again, this is a a Florida resident-only offer, right? Or, right, yeah, Florida residents-only. Okay. Although, I mean, there's no technical reason why it couldn't be, right? Mm-hmm. Again, okay. I, I think Disney doesn't want to... Uh, um, no theme park wants to discount their regular base tickets, especially for out-of-state people. So I, I think it would be very unusual for Disney to, that, to do that. Okay. Here's the next question, though, and it relates to the timing mm-hmm. of the purchase. And the question is, how much time elapsed between when you learned about the Disney Magic Flex ticket and when you decided to purchase the ticket? And so the options are, I did it in the same week, I did it about a week after, about a month after, or a few months after. And Max here answered, I got it the same week, which is, I think, exactly what Disney wants to hear. Oh, no, no, absolutely. Yeah. There, were, uh, there were a couple of other interesting questions, and I won't go through all the options, but the questions mm-hmm. were, how many tickets did you buy? Did you plan on staying in Walt Disney World when you used the tickets? Were you planning to visit Walt Disney World before you learned about these tickets? So that's the, incre- uh, the incremental sales mm-hmm. that they got. So if you weren't planning to visit before you learned about the tickets... But then you heard about the tickets and you're like, you know what? That's, that's enough for me. I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that, that's it. And in fact, the next question after that is, if the tickets weren't available, would you still have made the trip? Mm-hmm. There, and then the two other questions were, were you expecting Disney to offer discounted tickets? <laughs> and before purchasing the ticket, how did you feel about visiting the parks during the pandemic? Wow. Two strong ones for the closer there. And, uh, wow. well, so then the, the last absolute last question is, and this one's kind of complicated, so bear with me, folks. But mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a, a question with 100 points that you have to allocate in, as follows. Mm-hmm. What factors had the most influence in your decision to visit a Walt Disney World theme park between July 22nd and September 30th? So basically during the tickets, during the um, flex ticket deals. So you're given 100 points and you have to allocate all 100 points to the following seven things. Limited crowds the promotional offer or discount, new health or safety procedures, the travel dates were convenient to my schedule, I missed being immersed in the Disney magic, I needed an escape from the daily routine, or none of the above. So that's, that's Disney trying to figure out, I mean, this is my take on it, this is Disney trying to figure out the marketing message mm-hmm. to give, right? So if, if they get a thousand of these surveys and the thing with the most points is limited crowds, Mm-hmm. You're going to start to see shots of Main Street with nobody on it. Okay. Yeah. This is the second time we've seen this, I needed an escape from the daily routine message pop up. Right. How many of us trapped at home working who just, it's like, I, I got to do something different. So. Well, that's that's why I'm, I think that September and October might not be as slow mm-hmm. as Disney's thinking because as more kids go virtual for the fall semester, What's to stop anyone from traveling? Like, we're all working from home. Anyway, what's to stop us from just working in a Disney hotel a few, for a few really hours? That's a interesting idea. I had not. No. I, I, ooh, I love when you think around corners. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, what's, what's to stop us from just coming down on a random Tuesday, right? I mean, okay, okay so the kid's got to be, you know, in school from, you know, 10 to 3. We can still go to Animal Kingdom from 8 to 9, and we can still well, go to, you know, pretty much every other park after 3. <laughs> and I hate to say that that's wonderful incentive to finish your homework. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it says you have to be online. It doesn't say you, you can't be online at the pool. Uh, <laughs> like, 
<laughs> Could you oh. imagine, imagine yes. a, third, a third grader like under a beach, beach umbrella with a pina colada yeah. in, in, their, in their Zoom school meeting with there sunglasses and a hat on? Like, yeah, yeah. Keep, keep talking about trigonometry. Go ahead. <laughs> what was that thing you said about Pythagorean theorem? Yeah. And then, you know, drinking on the straw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I think we're going to see more people traveling. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to get beaten up once, you know, we actually get back to school and out in the playground. Oh, yeah, totally. All right. The uh, the next thing I want to do is uh, there was a, a survey sent in about Alani. And as we all know, Alani has been closed for months, right? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where um, even if Disney wanted to reopen, the state of Hawaii has imposed pretty oh. onerous quarantines on people coming in and understandably so right you have to show a negative pcr covid19 test within 72 hours of arrival otherwise you're in a 14-day quarantine and um and and with and they they're actually very very serious about it. like they're, they're checking on you can't go out um then they send people around to make sure that you're you're actually quarantined so anyway so our listener lucy uh sent in this survey and it was uh it got some interesting questions the first question is how involved do you personally get in the following types of internet-related activities? Um, and the first one is online fan sites serving people who are interested in specific types of vacations or vacation destinations. So do you do you visit fan sites for specific locations? Uh, and the answers are, I post or write comments on these sites. I visit uh, these sites and write or answer polls, but never post or write comments. Um, I visit these sites in browse only. I've heard of these sites, but never visited, or I've never heard of these websites. So what's what's that, Jim? We've talked about messaging earlier in, in today's show, and the notion is, okay, so where are you getting your information? What yeah, information? Yeah, that's what this is. Yeah. Which channels are you going to, so to speak? And then it, it becomes a question, well, if, they, if that's where they go for info, how do we control the narrative? Or, exactly. Or, yeah. Yeah. That's what I think too. Do we mm. do we put ads on these sites? Do we do partnerships with them? What? Because the next question is, how involved do you personally get in online social networking sites such as Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? So sort of the same thing. So then the um, uh, the next set of questions deal with changes to Alani reservations. So uh, Lucy had a uh, an Alani reservation. And the question is, which best describes the change you made to your most recent Alani resort reservation? I canceled it and made an existing reservation for later. I moved it. I modified the room number of guests or number of days only or other. So mm-hmm. in this particular case, uh, I think uh, Lucy canceled hers and then made another one. What best describes why you canceled or moved your earlier or original Alani reservations? And first, the first thing on the list is travel restrictions were instituted for Hawaii. Mm-hmm. So Disney's obviously knows what they're looking for there. Then it was announced that Alani would be closed during my original reservation period. The primary reason for my visit was canceled, e.g. a show or event was canceled. I was concerned about being in crowds or large groups of people. I was concerned about flying. Travel restrictions were instituted where I live. My transportation options were limited or canceled. I feared for my personal safety or security. There were financial concerns or there were concerns about exposure to the illness. So Disney's, Disney, again, is trying to figure out why you canceled. And then I guess the next set of questions would be, uh, what's going to make you come back, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the next one is, assume the following. Assume that stay-at-home restrictions have been lifted and you're able to travel. And assume there are no restrictions in Hawaii that prevent you from traveling 
to the area and assume that flights are available from your home to Hawaii and the pricing is comparable to prior trends and that travel providers in Hawaii attractions, including Alani, will have implemented a new set of health and safety measures, such as all employees and customers wearing face coverings, uh, disinfecting, and so on. So assuming all of that, mm-hmm. which best describes your intentions to keep your currently planned Alani Resort Reservation for, and it's the date in the future that you have it. I'm fully committed. I will definitely keep my reservation. I'm somewhat committed. I'm not very committed. I'm not at all committed. We will definitely cancel our currently planned reservation. Hmm. Ah, so this is Disney trying to figure out for the future mm-hmm. if things get somewhat better. They're not back to normal, right? Because they didn't mention having a vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. But assuming that we've got, assuming Hawaii is open, how committed are you to coming? So this is Disney trying to project out their future bookings, I think. If you're traveling to Alani, that's a commitment. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. I mean, you're not going there for two days. Yeah, you're going there no. for a week. Yeah, just the procedure to travel there. Even if you're leaving from LA, that's what, six-hour flight? Yeah, from the East Coast, from the East Coast, you can get direct flights, but they're uh, somewhere between nine and 11 hours, depending on oh. how fast the plane can go. Yeah. Woo! Yeah. I've done it once. Never mm-hmm. again. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, the next set of questions ask whether you'd still be committed if the following things were not available. So, for example, if the spa wasn't available or the luau or valet parking or the kids club or no table service restaurants or no buffets or no character dining, would you still be committed? So, mm-hmm. same set of options. And on that one, I think uh, Lucy said she would not be very committed to a reservation, if that's the case. You and I were talking about, is it really a Disney theme park without a daily parade or without fireworks? And then you were talking about how mm. much you enjoyed, you know, the character cavalcades that go through the parks. And, you the, know, the cavalcades for me are, are perfectly reasonable substitutes for the parades. I still miss mm-hmm. the fireworks. Mm-hmm. But I think the fireworks thing at this point, Jim, is um, is cost. Because I think, I think I read somewhere that Disney says they spend like a quarter of a million dollars a day mm. on fireworks, which is entirely believable. And I mean, frankly, with the attendance that they're getting, that's a lot of money they don't need to spend. So that's a, a quarter of a million spread over four parks that, you know, that they each of Still, the chosen. Still, a million dollars, individual. a couple million dollars a day. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it starts that up after a while. So. <laughs> 250K here, 250K there, it all starts that up. The, yeah, the last question on, uh, on Lucy's survey, the last set of questions were, um, what would make you feel more comfortable in visiting Alani? So it's things like guests required to wear masks at all times, unless dining, actively using resort water features or sitting in a pool and beach chair, digital options to check into resort rooms without visiting the front desk, or flexible cancellation or change policy, increased number of hand, sanitation, hand sanitizing stations, employees being required to wear masks, cloth face masks, employee screening for temperatures, physical distancing, other or the last option is nothing would make me more or less likely to keep my currently booked Alani Resort Reservation. So there's that. So many of these policies are already implemented at Walt Disney World. You know, they're, yeah, they're, that's the thing. Yeah. So they're tested. So it's a question of, okay, we, we know how to do these. Would, would these help? Would, would these Let get the, you on a plane? So. That's why I think, um, you know, there, I mean, there's so many resorts in Hawaii that from, from all the major brands that they're all looking at what they're learning on, on the continental U.S., Mm-hmm. And seeing what what would fly in Hawaii. The, the good thing is is that Hawaii, being a you know beach resort, um, there's more open. People are going to be outside more, so you might be able to do a, you might be a little bit more flexible around things like face masks, especially around pools. And that that would just come more naturally, just being in that environment versus a theme park. You know, I'm telling you, if I, if I could find a good deal on points, I would totally go to Alani. Mm-hmm. 
It's the 11 hours on a plane. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I guess start the Mai Tais at the terminal and you know, <laughs> just, you know. Ah, anyway. All right, folks, when we come back, Jim tells us the story of Animal Kingdom's struggles to come up with a workable nighttime entertainment program. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, we heard a couple weeks ago that Disney was retiring the Rivers of Light nighttime spectacular permanently and for good. And we had lamented this because it was the original idea for Rivers of Light, we thought, I think, I think both of us thought, was was a really well-conceived idea that just execution-wise didn't happen. But this isn't the first time that Disney's looked at nighttime entertainment for the park and not been able to, to pull it off, right? If you go to a, a Disney theme park and then no fireworks, does it feel like you've actually had the Disney theme park experience that we've known and love? And right. and that was the thing, you know, almost from the get-go with Animal Kingdom. When they announced the park in, in June of 95, the idea was a different species of theme park. and But it was hugely expensive right from the get-go. I mean, it was it was... Because of the need for fences and moats and and barns back of house, first of all, it was the largest theme park Disney had ever built up until that time. 580 acres, that's five times the size of the Magic Kingdom. But so much of the money had to be plowed into things that guests didn't see in the kind of tradition of a Disney theme park, but they thought they'd be able to build the thing for six to 800 million. They ended up spending over a billion dollars on this thing. So it opens April of 1998, right out at the bat, the attraction that's the most popular is Kilimanjaro Safari, 18 minute long journey through a uh, simulated African Savannah of 110 acres, Uh, amazing setup of animals. But the downside is as soon as the sun went, you know, started to go down, this became less and less a satisfying experience. And, and a lot of that was because during the 18 months prior to the park opening, mm-hmm. the animal handlers had taught the animals, it's like, okay, you see the sun going down, it's time to come back to the barn so we can do a health check, we can count heads, and we can feed you. Okay. There were animals that then bedded down for the night in the barn, There were, but and the small group of animals that would then go back out to the savannah. Right. Um, All right. But, so, so one immediate problem is once the winter equinox happens, oh, it's, it gets dark at 4.30. <laughs> yeah, and that's it exactly. Okay. And in fact, it, it headed into the hugely lucrative holiday season of the Walt Disney World. You know, all of the other parks are extending their hours and, you know, putting on special holiday programming. And here's Animal Kingdom, where again, it's, it's 4.30 in the afternoon. So they try for that one season, holiday of 1998, a nighttime safari. Really? And it, so the idea goes back twenty more than twenty years. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Ooh. And now, now, mind you, again, it's the first year of operation, Len. To be honest, there's not a lot of money, uh, so they kind of meatball what they do, uh, because you know they they have to do the work around the you know fully through through uh, three quarters. I, I've heard as high as five six of the animals. They're you know again at dusk they're back at the barns. Right. So you now have to sort of create the illusion that there are animals out there. So it's like uh, Steve the intern uh, rustling branches in the. Uh- <laughs> 
<laughs> you, in the front. I, you are so close, actually. <laughs> Joe, getting, Joe Rody's first job was was to shake trees on the safari. You know, one of the things they did is they, they literally created this soundscape. They went in and would drop speakers. So you would hear animals out rustling in the brush. You couldn't see them, but you could hear them. And then they did things where they went out and they put eye-shaped reflectors at varying different heights Ooh. in the attraction. And so the idea is as the headlights of the safari vehicle would come around, sort of you see that flash of light that said, there's an animal over there in the dark. <laughs> so like, I, can, I can picture them gluing these reflective eyes on like a football and just well, putting you know, it out just, behind a plant, some sort of hedgehog, I think. The toughest part of it was is that, again, there were animals that were actually on display in these things, and they would they would come in and you know they they'd have like the opaki you know eating the the reflective or chewing on the thing that was was up high because it's like oh is this enrichment and it's like no reflector <laughs> 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 tape but then you, you get the things like. There's the six-acre elephant compound, and the elephants every night, you know, back in the barn, you know, they're getting yep. their food. And so when you drive through the elephant compound, it's a huge part oh, yeah. of, the, you know, so what they wound up doing is they actually hired an African dance troupe who every night, you know, after dusk and after they made, you know, all right, the elephants are locked up, right? Okay. <laughs> You're sure, right? You check the door? <laughs> yeah, there we go. They'd build a bonfire, and then th these guys would dance around the bonfire. So you'd have where the elephants are. Yeah, you know. I, I, now, mind you, I am hoping they cleaned up the spot that they actually had them dancing around. Why are they not doing that now? That's a great idea. These are people who've been to the other Disney theme parks, and so somebody who's been on the Jungle Cruise and seen the victorious hunting party. You know, they've just killed the lion, and so there they are dancing around the thing. And it was, it was one of these things where it's like, these are actual people dancing in front of an actual bonfire. And the comment they got from guests, it's like, yeah, you recycled that stupid scene from the Jungle Cruise. You know, it's just sort of like... <sighs> it's why we can't have nice things, Jim. It's why we can't have nice things. Yeah. So the guest surveys in January of 1999 were just appalling. You know, people complained about, you know, they didn't see any real animals. They felt that it wasn't, you know, it, was, it wasn't up to Disney standards. It wasn't a good value. And the Imagineers are like, we can fix this. We'll need to, to buy another set of animals that we then train to go out on the savannah at night. We'll need to set up some sort of a lighting, you know, a lighting system. And they literally meatballed the, the lighting. They, they rolled in, you know, like those temporary traffic construction at night, you know, the, yep. those sorts of lights. And it's just sort of like, with light that bright, animals aren't going to want to hang out next to And especially with the generator. With the generator running. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's like, we'd need to buy specialized lights. We'd need to create feeders and enrichment stations that were deliberately closer to the ride vehicle path. We have to train the animals, A, to go there, and B, not get run over. And the pushback from Disney managers like, we are less than nine months open at this park. We have to concentrate on increasing capacity. And, you know, so we can't be adding additional bells and whistles to an attraction that's already open. And, and in fact, you know, they, they immediately pivoted to finish Cali River Rafferts and the Maharaja Jungle Trek, which opened right. March of that same year. But it's now becomes kind of a vicious circle because the word gets out that animals, you know, because of the Central Florida heat, 
are most active in the morning. So if you really want to see a lot of animals, you need to get to Disney's Animal Kingdom early in the morning. But that then, you know, with the limited number of attractions that are open at the park. Yeah, you're, you're done, by, done by 1 p.m. Yeah, and when you have shops and restaurants that are now standing open for the four and five hours that the park remains to be open and they're empty, that really hurts your financials. You know, you're not making your numbers, which is why, for example, Beastly Kingdom, which remember, they, they were hyping, you know, it's, you know, it's like, hey, you know, look at as you come in the entrance, see the dragon skull, that land's coming. You know, just this was not me. The park was not meeting its financial projections. Beastly Kingdom basically fell off the table, and that's how we get Chester and Hester's Dinorama Oof. in uh, 2002 or thereabouts. I mean, it, it, it solved the capacity problem at a, or at least helped the hourly ride capacity at a much lower price point. But then it's like, okay, so how do we, you know, as you said, people are leaving at one. Well, how do we mitigate that? Well, what if we had a three o'clock parade? Yep. So, that's where Mickey's Jammin' Jungle show comes from? Mickey's Jammin' Jungle Parade? Laurel's favorite parade. Was it really? Okay, By a wide mark, like not even close. All right. Uh, but now I have to ask, was that because you, she was so ridiculously close to the parade vehicles? Because, of course, there was no sidewalk? I think she, she really liked the music and she liked the costuming. And, yeah, the fact that you, if you stretch your legs out, actually get run over by one of the parade floats, I think... Uh, <laughs> added to the allure of the parade for her. Wow. Okay. Lady who likes to live on the edge. <laughs> but on the exact same day that Mickey's Jammin' Jungle Parade opens at Animal Kingdom, Tapestry of Nations opens at Epcot. And if you're somebody who's paying to fly down to Florida to stay at Disney World, what parade looks like a, a better return on your investment? I mean, Mickey's Jam and Jungle, because, you know, the roads were deliberately so narrow and so textured to create, you know, the illusion that you're really in Asia, you're really in Africa. They couldn't do the standard Disney parade floats. There were a lot of retrofitted small trucks and pargos. Yep. But I think I think the, it, it was a more intimate parade. You were oh, right no, no, there. no, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but the very fact that it, it was... You know, uh, there were a lot of places in the park that it was just difficult to watch it from. Yeah, you had to be on. You had to be in the middle of Discovery Island by the Tree of Life. That, that was no. the most space. Yeah. yeah, and if you know, God help you if you were, you know, that bridge going in and out of Asia. You know, uh, <laughs> so it's exactly what I was thinking. Like you, you, you and the parade float could both not be on that bridge at the same time. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was not a happy situation. And and to be honest. The problem was that all Mickey's Jamming Jungle Parade did is they moved the exit point of the park from 1 o'clock to 3.30. Still, two and a half hours. Yeah. Yep. And it, but people we, are staying for dinner is the problem, right? So if yeah. you're, I guess if you're a Rainforest Cafe and you're counting on a breakfast, lunch, and dinner crowd and you're not getting the dinner crowd, that's problematic. Yep. So that opens October of 99. We then get the Chester and Hester stuff opening. I want to say Triceratops Spins opens in March of 2002. April of 2002, we get the Primeval World, which, again, just like... Closed a couple uh, months ago, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that also closed. But again, same thing. They're looking at it. And even with these attractions being able to run right up until, you know, park close, it, they're really not moving the needle. And so it's like, okay, what do we do here? How do we turn this around? 
October of 2003, wishes a magical gathering of Disney dreams opens at the Magic Kingdom and is is immediately hailed as, oh my God, you know. Um, yeah, it was. It's the modern era of Disney nighttime spectaculars. I mean, that's, that, that, that's exactly. that was the start of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the notion that you can finally use you know fireworks to tell a story in the sky. Yep. And wishes is Steve Davidson baby, and and at that point, Steve's on a real roll. I mean, December of '97, he was the guy who you know got Small World Holiday built. February of 2000, we get Believe, There's Magic in the Stars. That's that's Disneyland's second fireworks show ever. Wow. And the replacement of Fantasy in the Sky that had been in the park there since 65, but, you know, immediately embraced. And then October of 2001, Haunted Mansion Holiday. And then, of course, October of 2003, we get Wishes. That's quite a streak. I mean, that's four four really good things in six years for Steve. Yeah, and, yeah, and wow. the interesting thing is that Disney recognized what he, a talent he was at that point. So, Ann Hamburger, who was the then vice president in charge of Disney Creative Entertainment, she asked Steve to literally join Imagineering as the creative director of parades and shows worldwide. You know, wow. so it's like, you're going to be our ubermeister of shows and parades. And But the very first project that gets dropped in Steve's lap is like, you have to create a piece of entertainment that will keep guests in Disney's Animal Kingdom right up till park close. But almost immediately, Steve's hands are tied behind his back because, A, you can't do a fireworks show in Disney's Animal Kingdom, not without handing quaaludes out to, you know, the gorillas or, you know, that just... Which apparently it, some groups frown upon to this day, Jim. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. understand. Like, you know, and, and then... You know, look, there's no decades-old beloved attraction like Small World or, or Haunted Mansion, you know, that you can then retheme around the holidays or that sort of thing. So so Steve really has to put his thinking cap on. And, and what does he come up with? We'll talk about that on the next Disney Dish. Ooh, great cliffhanger, Jim. There we go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's regular show, we'll finish this story of how we got to the Animal Kingdom's Rivers of Light. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be pouring early samples of his Beaujolais Nouveau on Saturday, September 30th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Black Star Farms Estate in Wine Tour, just off State Road 22 in beautiful Sutton's Bay, Michigan. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and write our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.